Let's open the Scriptures together to the Gospel of John, John chapter 12. You may have uh, noticed by now that in the Gospel of John there's a lot of themes that keep coming back as John writes his Gospel, and the theme in John 12, or one of the themes that comes up is this metaphor of light and darkness. And we're reading from John 12 because that helps us understand the way the metaphor is used in our text in John 3. So just pay attention to this metaphor of light and darkness as we go through. Beginning at verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. I invite you to turn with me once again to the Gospel of John. Our text comes from chapter 3, but I'd like to read some verses from chapter 1. As we've seen a few times, John, the Gospel writer, leans heavily on that, those introductory verses of chapter 1, and he re brings back those themes again and again. And to see the connection with chapter 3, it's very helpful to read what he writes in chapter 1. So we're just going to read the first 13 verses, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now to chapter 3, continuing our series, we pick up the words of our Savior at verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. This section of the service was not recorded due to technical issues. All the tongues, all of the human race is the object of God's love. Jesus makes this clear in different ways. Verse 15, Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Repeats that in verse 16. Whoever believes. Later in chapter 12, which we read, Christ says a bit more on this. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, referring to the cross, I will draw all people to myself. Not just Israelites. I will draw all people. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb for all ethnic groups, not just for Israelites. Can you accept that, Nicodemus? Along with Jews inside the kingdom of God will be many Gentiles from all sorts of nations from around the world, for God loves the world. Now, this does not mean that every single person will be saved. The rest of this text makes that very clear, right? Jesus says, only those who believe. Nor does it mean that every single person on earth is loved by God in exactly the same way. We have to always compare Scripture with Scripture, and elsewhere the Bible teaches that there are individuals whom God hates. Those hardened followers of Satan, think of Esau, Romans 9, Paul quotes the Old Testament, God hated Esau. Jesus, though, is not explaining in this text, he's not explaining the finer details of the doctrine of election, whereby God chose to love some unto salvation and others not. He's simply and powerfully declaring this sincere and well-meant gospel offer to the entire world. Nobody is to be excluded from hearing the offer that the death of the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of God, is sufficient to pay for the sins of every person in the entire world. So come and believe. 
That's the Creator's keen desire, His loving desire. Come out of your darkness and put your trust in my Son. What Jesus is describing in verse 16 in particular is God's posture, His attitude toward the world, toward humanity. He looks upon this world, this, He looks upon this, this battered and bleeding human race, He looks upon us with compassion, with concern, with kindness, with deep love. And it's out of that unfathomable love that He sent His only begotten Son to be sacrificed for sinners. Did you notice the change, the, the subtle change there from verses uh, 14 to 16 and the reference to the Son? In verses 14 and 15, Jesus calls Himself Son of Man. But in verse 16, he unveils another layer of God's love. This Son of Man, who has to be raised up on a pole, on a cross, is also, verse 16, God's only begotten Son. He's not just a random Son of Man. Not just a, some kind of creature that was created to be called Son of Man. He is, in fact, the natural Son of God. He's divine. He's the only begotten Son. And the Father was willing to send His only Son to a horrifying, brutal, painful, anguishing death on a cross to save enemies, sinners like you and me. Tell me, brothers and sisters, would you do that? Would you send your only child, your only son, to suffer and die in order to save people who hated you? Do we even desire to save people who hate us. But this is God. This is God's posture to the world that hates Him. And if we have received this love from God, if we know ourselves to be sinners saved by grace, should not our hearts be soft and open and kind-hearted towards all our neighbors? even those who hate us. Now, none of this takes away from God's justice. You might recall that in John's Gospel, as we've been going through this series, we have seen that God, John presents us with God's court case against the world, against Jew and Gentile alike. In John's Gospel, we often read of witnesses, sent by God, witnesses like John the Baptist, like Jesus himself, like the miraculous signs he performed. All of these witnesses proclaim what God has done for both Jew and Gentile in sending his Son as Messiah. And yet in, in John's Gospel, we also read of those who refuse to accept, who refuse to believe this testimony, 
and therefore how God's judgment rests upon them. And Jesus speaks of this judgment in our text, verse 17 and 18. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. There's a a legal term, a courtroom term. But in order that the world might be saved through Him, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So, in that first verse 17, Jesus lays out the grand purpose of why God sent His Son to rescue the world. The world needed saving, right? The mission was necessary because the world was in condemnation. The world, the whole world stood under God's wrath in condemnation. That's what is clarified in verse 18. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. They're in a state of condemnation. So Jesus didn't need to condemn the world to come to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. He came to save them out of their condemnation. But the point he wants to make there in verse 18 is that the starting point for the human race is condemnation. What does that mean? It means the opposite of eternal life. It means perishing in eternal death. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2, verse 1, it means that we all by nature are children of God's wrath. We are under wrath. That's how we start life as humans. The difference now between condemnation and salvation, between eternal hell and between eternal life, between life in the fires of agony and a future of God with peace, the difference is believing in the name of Jesus, the Son of God. It only takes faith. Jesus is really clear about that. But then it must be genuine faith, not that superficial kind that the crowds had, that Nicodemus had. They treated Jesus like a rock star. Rock star faith is not faith. Putting somebody up on a pedestal is not faith. Being wowed by the magician is not faith. Jesus is is drilling down on this point because Nicodemus doesn't get it, and we don't get it by nature either. To truly believe in Jesus is in fact not natural to any human. That's what Jesus says in verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Jesus moves into that metaphor now of light and darkness, just as John did in chapter 1 of his gospel. Jesus is the light who has shone the promise of life into the spiritual darkness of rebellious humanity. And then comes this sweeping and alarming generalization. People loved the darkness. They they saw the light shining, but they turned their back and they loved darkness. That's sobering. 
and alarming. It's also an echo of what John wrote in chapter 1, verse 12. The Word came to the world, but the world did not know Him, did not know the light that was shining upon them. The world rejects the light. Why? Why does the world embrace darkness? Says Jesus in verse 18, because we like it that way. We love darkness. Sin is natural to us. We don't want to give it up. This is the desperate situation of both you and me and every human being by nature. We cling to our rebellion. We're comfortable serving ourselves. We've got no desire to come out of the darkness of sin into the light of Jesus because we like the dark. Can you relate to that, brothers and sisters? Isn't it true that even as Christians, do we not have a powerful attraction to acting selfishly, to indulging sinful desires, to enjoying the pleasures of sin? Are we not drawn to the dark of sin by nature? You see, that's, that's the big difference here between true faith and false faith. Between truly believing in the name of Jesus and just saying you do. The difference is true believers, they give up the darkness. Unbelievers, they don't want to do that. They keep their sin. That's Jesus' point in verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things, hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Nicodemus, remember he's speaking to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you and the crowds of people with you who say you believe in my name, are you willing to give up wickedness? Are you willing to turn from a pattern, pattern of living for yourselves in order to live for God? Are you willing to deny that instinct to enjoy secret sins and instead embrace the one who will die to pay for those very sins? Are you willing to hate the darkness? Hate the darkness and love the light? Are you willing, my brothers, my sisters? Am I willing? Jesus is speaking here to the teacher of Israel, to one of the leaders of the church. Through him he speaks to all the covenant people of God and ultimately to everyone who hears. And so we have to, each of us, examine ourselves and ask this question, do I love darkness? Or do I want to give it up with all of my heart and embrace the light? I sit in church every Sunday. I hear the gospel. I hear the Ten Commandments explained and spoken. I, they teach me God's will, the difference between sin and obedience, between darkness and light. I sing Him one the Apostles' Creed. I tell people I believe in Jesus, 
But what is really going on? Down below the surface in our hearts. Do I love my secret sins? Do I refuse to give up the secret part of my life? Don't want people to know about it. Or will I come fully into the light of the Lord Jesus Christ, confess my sins to Him openly, and abandon my sins at the foot of His cross? Truly believing in Jesus is more than a verbal confession. It's not less, but it's more. It's a turning away from darkness in shame and sorrow for all of those sins, and it's to bask in the beauty and joyful light of Jesus. That's something else that comes out here in Jesus' words. It's a bit subtle, but still very important. This desire to embrace Jesus as the light of salvation, the light of the world, and to do so without any sense of embarrassment. Turning away from sin, turning away from our selfish desires, that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is to come openly and publicly to Jesus and not be ashamed to be having our arms wrapped around him in public. Jesus is getting at that in verse 21. Whoever does what is true comes to the light, that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Whoever does what is true. More literally, Jesus says, whoever does truth. It's an expression found in the Old Testament, and it refers to acting faithfully in accordance with God's covenant. So an Israelite who believed God's promises in the covenant, the promise to forgive his sins and grant him a place in his kingdom, and who also walked in integrity, in obedience to God's commandments, not sinlessly, you understand, but with integrity. Nobody's sinless, but you can be a man or a woman of integrity. That person, says the Old Testament, is doing truth, believing God, obeying the commands. That's doing truth. He's acting, she's acting faithfully. That kind of person will be drawn to the light, to Jesus of Nazareth. That kind of person will recognize Jesus for who he is, the Messiah who brings the full salvation of God. So he, he will come to Jesus without shame, without any sense of embarrassment, without hesitation. He will embrace Jesus fully. We have an example of that earlier in this gospel. In Nathaniel, we've seen that in an earlier sermon, chapter 1, Jesus, or, or, yeah, Jesus describes Nathaniel there as an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. So in Nathaniel is one of these, these Israelites of integrity, a sincere believer in God who faithfully believes, who faithfully obeys, who knows his sins and weaknesses are forgiven by grace in the sacrifices offered in the temple. In other words, Nathaniel is a man who does truth. And though at first Nathaniel doubted, 
that anyone from Nazareth could be the promised Messiah. He was nevertheless drawn to, to come to Jesus by the encouragement of a friend, Andrew. And in very short order, he openly and unashamedly confesses, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. It's a full confession of faith, just seconds after meeting Jesus. Nathaniel loved the light. He had no trouble embracing Jesus in faith for all the world to see. And that's what Reese and Courtney are doing here this morning. They've been followers of Christ for a long time already, shunning the darkness of sin and serving Christ. But as they join themselves to this body of Christ, they are eager once again to declare publicly their love for Jesus, their obedience to Jesus, their commitment to Jesus. The whole congregation will see it. We're all gathered here to witness that. It'll be on YouTube for the world to see if they want. And Courtney and Reese are not ashamed to make this profession publicly, openly. How wonderful. What an encouragement for the rest of us to be open and honest and public, to be unashamed of embracing the light. We have trouble with that sometimes, don't we? A sense of shame, a sense of embarrassment, a sense of maybe looking poorly in the eyes of our neighbor. That can easily overcome us when we have interactions with our neighbors related to the faith. When someone asks you, for example, so why don't you work Sundays? Like, what's that all about? What kind of answer do you give them? I can't, because I have to go to church. Or, that's a family day for us. Or, blame it on your mom and dad, my parents told me I couldn't. Are we embarrassed to say something like this? Well, on Sundays, I have the privilege of going to meet my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to offer Him the worship of my heart along with the rest of His congregation. Hey, why don't you come with me sometime and check it out for yourself? Why don't we do that very easily? Or if somebody asks you, how was your weekend? What kind of answer do you give? Do you give a general answer, kind of a vague answer? That was fine. Fun, lots of fun. Why don't we say very quickly, my weekend? Oh, you mean, you mean Sunday? Oh, man, that was special. The Lord Jesus met with me and his people. And he spoke to us the good news of the forgiveness of our sins in his death. It was so refreshing. We shy away from being that open with our unbelieving neighbors, don't we? 
Something inside of us knows that those neighbors of ours, they live in darkness, and their instinct is to love the darkness and hate the light. And so in order not to offend them, in order not to be embarrassed in front of our neighbors, we tend to downplay our commitment to Jesus. We tend to downplay our faith, downplay our religion. We prefer to keep our relationship with Jesus private. How very, very Canadian of us. But Jesus does not commend us for being Canadian. Being Canadian is a whole lot more like Nicodemus than it is Nathaniel. Remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Nobody else could see him coming at night. None of his Pharisee buddies in the Sanhedrin could, were likely to find out about it. So when Jesus, now speaking to Nicodemus, says that believing in Jesus' name means that doing what is true, doing the truth, coming into the light of Jesus, he's pushing Nicodemus' buttons. Nicodemus, you've come to me at night. Do you really want to come to the light? Step out of the darkness, man. And Jesus asked the same question of you and of me. Are you member of the church, child of God, are you actually ashamed of me? Do I embarrass you in front of your co-workers or classmates or neighborhood friends? Elsewhere, Jesus gives this warning to every one of us, Luke 9, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of his Father and of his holy angels. Brothers and sisters, do not be ashamed of the light. He is your life. Give up the darkness and embrace Jesus Christ wholeheartedly, publicly, unashamedly. And then you will know and you will experience the wonder and the assurance of life, the life that Jesus promises here. True living with God as his son or daughter in peace and fellowship. A life that will certainly carry on forever, but it's a life that begins today. Jesus emphasizes the present uh, beginning of that life in verse 16, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You have it. All sins forgiven now. He says it again, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. So if you believe, you stand in a new relationship with the Father through the Son, a relationship of peace, harmony, of acceptance and love, a relationship that will last into eternity. If you have this faith, if you truly believe in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, raised up on a pole for the forgiveness of your sins, this then is your new permanent reality. You have this life and nobody and no thing can take it from you. It's God's gift to you, and no one can steal it.
Indeed, all of this is God's gracious doing. John wrote in chapter 1, But to all who did receive the word, who believed in his name, God gave the right to become children of God, children who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but children born of God. God's doing. Jesus told this plainly to Nicodemus earlier in the conversation, 3 verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. God's doing. The Holy Spirit sent from God comes along with the preaching, the word of the gospel, and, and the Spirit goes into hearts and He opens the ears and He opens the eyes of those whom God has chosen to give life to. And now in verse 21, Jesus makes this clear once again. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In God are the works carried out. That preposition can mean in God or through God, even by God. But the point here is that whatever faithfulness is found in a person, the very act of trusting in Jesus as Messiah and the act of turning from the darkness of sin toward the light of obedience, all of that is God's work in the person. It's all grace upon grace. It's grace that brought Reese and Courtney to Jesus long ago that has brought them here today to once again publicly confess their faith. It's grace that has brought all the rest of us to Jesus, the light as well, to trust Him as Savior and Lord and to show that by turning from sin and doing the truth all without a sense of embarrassment, all without being ashamed of Jesus. We love the light, right? Then how good it will be to sing Psalm 18, stanza 1. I love you, Lord. You are my strength and power. Amen.